0: I th- it's it's very powerful that uh, I I use prostheses myself, um, and on, on on a few levels, that's important. One is I I intimately am aware of the consequence of poor design. I've 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 spent my life trying to work with bad design. And I, I know firsthand how devastating and painful it is to be, to try to go about the world and you're surrounded by technology that's incredibly uh, poor in its conception and design. Um, so that's one aspect. Another aspect is uh, I, I'm often the first human to test the technologies that are being conceived in my laboratory. I'm the first person to feel it to experience it because i can feel it and i also know the physics and engineering in my head i can really quickly um, find the bug and solve the bug where another person may know the the science and the and the engineering but can't feel it um, so it doesn't come to the solution as quickly as i do uh, so that's that's an interesting advantage that I have. And, um, regarding my passion, uh, again, I know how painful it is to be in a world of, with design that doesn't work. Um, and I know how extraordinary it is and life-changing it is to be given the, the, the gift of a fantastic design, whether it be a beautiful chair or prosthesis or an exoskeleton, great design leads to just absolute joy and human expression. So what what really drives me and my passions and whatnot is the times in my life where I can put out into the world a fantastic design that improves people's lives.
1: In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show come from Science Robotics Journal. I really find science robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about their research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. So I'd like to go back when uh, I think uh, you started your career and I think it's very inspirational for anyone listening to that. And I'm curious about when you started at age 17 is kind of repairs happened to you to start thinking about new bodies or how, what kind of question, what kind of thought at this moment to have repairs? Uh, Have a
0: new life. When I was 17, I was in a mountain climbing accident and suffered frostbite to my lower legs. And after months of effort, my medical team um, had to amputate my legs um, due to the health risk of gangrene. um, After my legs were amputated, I, I wanted to return to my chosen sport of mountain climbing. So I designed and fabricated my own artificial limbs for the vertical world. So I had specialized limbs for standing on small rock edges the width of a coin. I had uh, specialized limbs for uh, climbing steep ice walls and so on. Um, And from this body hacking, if you will, I was actually able to climb at a more advanced level about a year after my legs were amputated than I had achieved before the accident with biological limbs. So this was very inspiring, and it led me to my current research uh, objective of human augmentation.
1: Mm-hmm. Actually, I admire being creative and having kind of being not fear fearless about what, maybe what society or at this time. I'm curious about this kind of motivation and inspiration to design your own artificial limb. How do you start the design and thinking about something and... And having a challenge to design something for at this time was kind of not intelligent or doesn't have any capabilities. So, starting from simple things to design your artificial limb, how did you start thinking about that from thimble material at this time?
0: Yeah, you're correct. I, I, at the time, I didn't have uh, many resources and I wasn't educated in engineering and design. Um, but I was, I was familiar with uh, machining. Uh, I spent my high school um, in a machining um, curricula. So I I did know my way around a shop and using passive materials, I I fabricated feet. Um, I optimized their geometry, their impedance, their compliance um, for these various extreme conditions of ice and rock climbing. And it worked remarkably well. As I stated, I, I could climb uh, more difficult faces than I could achieve before the accident, and that you know, I from that experience, I realized that technology has the power to heal, to rehabilitate, and in my own case, the the authority to augment human capability, and that inspired me to um, go back to school and study science and engineering and design. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you see this kind of? embodied uh, as we speak about uh, how the brain and the body work for you, how you define the the relationship between the brain and the body. And especially if we imagine new bodies, not exactly as we see at the human. And I think that's really beautiful that how you define the beauty and the shape of the human. If you can tell us about the vision about this kind of change, how you see the relationship shouldn't necessarily the human body be the same shape all the time the design, the way you think about it, because you clearly think it's not all necessarily you have the same biological shape of the human or the same, maybe, be I don't know how to call it, but same morphology, maybe. So for you, how do you see this relationship here? Your philosophy about that?
0: Yeah, you know, Bionics, the field of Bionics, human Bionics seeks to develop... uh, synthetic and biological constructs that in the end emulate an anthropomorphic or normal biological morphology and dynamics. Um, but of course uh, augmentation is broader than that objective. We can we can imagine non-anthropomorphic capabilities, you know, humans with third arms, for example, or or much greater vision or hearing capacity or thinking capacity. You know, so an example of that is, you know, early on, I, I adjusted my, uh, the length of my legs or my, my stature uh, well beyond um, that of a, of a normal stature um, to be able to reach um, hand and footholds um, in an in a accelerated or augmented manner. So even in those early design days, I was exploring this idea of non-anthropomorphic augmentation. And thinking broadly as we, um, you know, march into this 21st century. I think that form of augmentation will become more and more paramount. And uh, at the twilight years of this century, I, I predict that humans will be unrecognizable from what we are today, morphologically and dynamically. And um, in, in my MIT lab, we're exploring connecting the human nervous system with synthetic computation bi directionally. And when we do that, we um, we achieve an embodiment where the human feels embodied into the designed construct as if it's their flesh and bone. Um, so that's very interesting because the design construct doesn't even have to look like a biological um, limb or, or body part, it can be perhaps wings or any type of form that potentially the nervous system could embody.
1: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Before going to that, I'm curious if there's maybe people sometimes argue with, I think you mentioned that before about this kind of godly shape and morphology, and you designed something that can enhance or, or maybe beyond what we really have as a human, and that's clearly what happened to you. So do you think this kind of notion people disagree that, designing something that cuts surpass what we have already as a human or godly creature as, as you called it
0: acceptance um i mean already today we're surrounded by technology that augments human capability uh, our smartphones as an example airplanes automobiles all these uh, devices enable humans to do things they're not able to do with just their bodies um so, I mean, and we don't, we often don't view it as augmentation because it's ubiquitous and it's everywhere and we're just used to it. Um, and so this, the future happens slowly. We slowly become more and more augmented. And because of that, um, that, that slow speed of augmentation rate, you know it's never really surprising and we continually believe that we're not augmented but we are in fact so my lab was the first to develop a leg exoskeleton to augment human walking and running and jumping um, and that type of technology of augmented humans through exoskeleton bionics uh, we're gonna see commercially in just a few years so it's very exciting
1: mm mm-hmm. And I'm curious about the struggles when you go through all these years about the design and how we approach design different prosthetic for different purposes. What kind of struggle do you have in design and the way of thinking, how you optimize this design? If you can tell us more what's the challenging part over these years to the design what we have now really adaptable to the movement of a human. What kind of struggle did you have over these years?
0: Yeah, it's very... Very difficult. Um, Us humans were very, very, very proficient at walking. We've been doing it for a very long time. So the idea of developing a machine that makes us even better at walking and running and jumping is an extraordinary task. Um, Our primary strategy is to try to determine uh, where humans are inefficient and where we are efficient. And where we're inefficient, using technologies in a very clever way to augment, to improve the efficiency. So, for example, when muscles, skeletal muscles, do um, positive thrusting work, they're very inefficient. The muscle gives off a lot of heat. Um, so, we, we look for, for walking and running gates, we look for areas of the gait for which muscles are doing a lot of inefficient work. And then we replace that work with uh, a motorized exoskeleton capability uh, to effectively reduce the amount of food energy or metabolics used to move. So imagine a leg exoskeleton where one could run uh, through the wilderness across rough terrain uh, without even breathing hard and not being particularly in shape. Um, When that's invented, no one will ever use a wheeled mountain bike ever again. Um, if we capture both the versatility of human legs and we improve the, the efficiency or economy of movement through exoskeletons, it will be a remarkably uh, fun toy.
1: You already have some already for time, but what do you think may be missing to to achieve this kind of you, you want a human to be superhero, as you mentioned. So what's maybe missing the overall picture?
0: Yeah, I mean, mean, to really really solve bionics, um, there's a few areas uh, of challenge. One is the mechanical interface between the bionic synthetic device and the human body. How do you attach a device to the human skeleton or body in a comfortable uh, manner? Um, A second interface is neural. How How do we connect the brain to bionic devices? And the third, I suppose, is the capacity to build bionic devices that move like us, um, which, which relates to power supplies and muscle-like actuators, if you will. So those three interfaces, the last being dynamic, um, the, the second I mentioned being neural or electrical, and the first being mechanical, those are the key challenges of of physical augmentation bionics.
1: mm mm-hmm. Now, what could be still maybe for you can't understand about the human like movement, whatever kind of locomotion, still maybe challenging for you to understand how you can make this connection between biology and bionics, or maybe later we about cyborg. So, what could be maybe still for you challenging understanding?
0: Yeah, to me, cyborg um, suggests a bidirectional connection between artificial computation and the biological brain so in the case of a prosthesis the human can can think and affect um, put information into the synthetic computer and in turn the synthetic computer can insert energy into back into the nervous system so closing the loop um, uh, creates the cyborg function yeah, What are the challenges? There's many, many challenges, but the dominant one we're working on is how, how to create that bi-directional link between um, small little computers and um, an interface to muscles and nerves in terms of uh, information signaling. So we're, we're looking at um, uh, ways of, of connecting to nerves and muscles, uh, novel surgical strategies, for example, uh, novel implants into the peripheral uh, to record these various signals.
1: Mm-hmm. And may I ask you, why do you think uh, for yourself, for example, the bionic one and the cyborg, what should maybe you don't want to choose the later, for example, cyborg? What is maybe for you the option? I mean, why you choose to, for bionic, for example? If there's an advantage for being bionic over cyborg in that case, or?
0: So bionic is a um uh is perhaps a subset of cyborg function. so again cyborgs simply means that the brain is connected to the mechatronic device bidirectionally um cyborg does not necessarily suggest that it's um biological like or human like which bionic does human bionics does so you you could be bionic but not a cyborg um and you can be a cyborg, but not bionic, <laughs> so they're somewhat distinct um, in my
1: view hmm but yeah. uh I, you do you don't think maybe there's um advantage for using um uh, cyborg now
0: yeah the bidirectional link to the brain uh there's profound advantages um, you know our our brains are remarkably adapt um, um You know, it's remarkable what we can do from a motor physical perspective. Um, And from an exoskeleton prosthetic perspective, um, that cyborg bi is critical for embodiment. So if you want to give a person, for example, with limb amputation, the feeling that the synthetic limb is actually themselves, is part of their body, then... uh, I believe strongly that the bidirectional brain linkage is, is essential. Uh, so of course we in the field could continue to advance robotics and AI and build purely intrinsic prosthetic limbs that are highly da- adaptive and emulate very closely biological dynamics. But, um, the problem with that approach is that the human would never feel connected to the device and would never feel embodied. And it would feel like, as an analogy, that you know you would always be sitting in the back seat of the vehicle, but you'd never be the vehicle or your hands on the steering wheel. So it's very important to, um, as a field, that we pursue a high-fidelity linkage between the human human brain and uh, synthetic computation elements that sit on the bionic uh, structures because only through that will we seek embodiment uh, where the patient where a person with limb loss after going through bionic reconstruction will truly feel that they have their body back that is that is the clinical goal mhm
1: and uh, i'm curious to skew do you think that approach it should be invasive or non-invasive. Which one do you think is more maybe reliable to the way of the communication between the brain, if we speak about bidirectional communication here? You already, um, I think the approach you try to use invasive ones, but do you think generally the invasive or non-invasive one more rel- reliable for communication between the nerve and the prosthetic limb? Well, the
0: you know, the spectrum of non-invasive to highly invasive um, there's an intermediate stage of minimally invasive so the the question is across that spectrum what are the advantages and disadvantages um, typically purely non-invasive interfaces um, have a very poor signal quality and they can also be uncomfortable so there's a, a limit in comfort there's a limit in how much you can extract from the signals that are collected with non-invasive electrodes, for example. The advantage of highly invasive is you get beautiful time-invariant signals, but it's invasive and may require surgeries and tremendous cost and whatnot. The, the minimally invasive point, um, intermediate point, is very interesting because it requires very minimal surgery, uh, but you still can get a sufficiently um, good signals in terms of um, quality. So that's, uh, in, in my lab at MIT, we're, we're exploring minimally invasive neural interfaces to, to muscle, for example. Our approach is to implant small little spherical magnetic beads into muscle. And then uh, we're able to, with external electronics outside the body, measure how the muscle moves dynamically um, with very high accuracy and precision.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you think for the material part as well, this kind of connection between, as you mentioned, you feel it's part of your body, and that's wonderful feeling that it doesn't matter if it's like biological part or synthetic part. But do you think the material so far, how it's really playing a crucial role in this design, do you think there's something should be... A- Maybe yeah investigate more or advancement in the material part, this kind of artificial skin or this kind of connection in the materials
0: so so if we solve the linkage between the human nervous system and mechatronics um, from the perspective of the human it won't it won't matter that the limb that their limb may be synthetic. Um, you know, if you completely maintain the signals coming out of the brain and into the brain, the central brain won't know that what the limb's made out of. Uh, and we're already seeing this in our, in our work. Um, so in a sense, if, if you connect to the nervous system well enough, the brain won't even realize that the limb has been amputated and rebuilt with synthetic materials. Now, the, the assumption there is that we've completely maintained the information flow into the brain. And that requires um, fantastic sensing in the artificial construct um, that's biomimetic, um, and it requires a high bit rate information flow into the nervous system. So these are all tremendous challenges, and the material and the sensor design um, is, of course, very important for that goal.
1: Mm-hmm. And when you try to upgrade each version, what's actually looking for in, in the performance? If you could just deeper about the, the way you think about upgrading the design, or yeah, how do you think about approaching this kind of upgrading, sort of features or? this part should be improved. Which one do you you go for? It's like the computational part or the mechanical design of the materials. Uh,
0: My my lab at MIT is is very, very diverse from an intellectual and skill set perspective. We're approaching the problem from most directions. (laughs) It's uh, perhaps uh, one of the most diverse labs um, in the world in the area of bionics. So we're doing um, genetics, we're doing machine learning, motor design, uh, power supply design, uh, tissue engineering, um, you know, across the board, we're integrating these formal disciplines and creating these bionic platforms. So the, the human body is very diverse. The human body is chemical, it's mechanical, it's electrical and so on. So to To hack the human body, intellectually, the team has to be very, very diverse um, or that team will not be successful. In addition, beyond science and technology, the team also has to comprise designers and artists. You know, if you're re re reimagining the human form, you know, we want to also think about um, aesthetics and not just functionality.
1: Mm-hmm. It There's something you this years was very challenging to design and maybe was maybe not intuitive how I can design something like that it was super challenging and maybe ended with something very beautiful in the design
0: yeah, with with artificial limb design what we typically do in, uh, is we we design a limb that has the shape of a normal biological limb but when you when you peel off the artificial skin, um, it doesn't look biological at all. Um, and we do that because the human user of that limb can one day um, want to hide the fact that part of their body is artificial and will use that synthetic skin. And the very next day, they may have a different mood and want to go to a an interesting party and and celebrate the fact that part of their body is a machine and, and exhibits a machine like beauty. So, allowing the user to explore both a human beauty and a machine beauty um, from day to day is is what we uh, what we would like to see in in terms of our design goals. Mm-hmm.
1: And when you see the intelligence and in the design, do you think? For example, the reflexes that you mentioned before, how this kind of reflex and behavior or adapting to maybe uncertain scenario. How do you see the design between this bidirectional, for example, to adapt to uncertainty or maybe situations maybe not expected?
0: Well, I mean, the, the challenge of a purely intrinsic design where all the sensing and computation is on the synthetic device the challenge of the unexpected banana peel on the floor is, is very, very difficult. If you, if you link the brain bi-directionally to the synthetic limb, um, you essentially solve that problem to the degree to which the biological systems capable of adapting, capable of tremendous versatility. Um, you tap into that intelligence and you, if you will, get it for free. So that's another reason why I'm. I think as a field, we first need to solve um, the interface with the brain. And once we do that, sure we can use artificial intelligence to to augment humans beyond natural capabilities. But first and foremost, we need a high fidelity linkage to the brain. The dominant challenges is. Um, the the link between synthetics and biologics so if you want to collect signals from a nerve motor signals um to extract how the person wishes to move um and if you want to reflect the sensory information from the bionic appendage onto the nervous system the the actual connection to the nervous tissues is the challenge um but there's been tremendous um, progress in the last decade uh, in that regard, and we're we're starting to see tremendous progress.
1: Mm-hmm. And being creative, uh, I don't know how do you see that kind of maybe what's next, or maybe what you want to see in the in the maybe the different bodies or new morphology. How do you see this kind of creativity in the design? Do you think being functionality or inventing new things. How do you see being creative in the design for what's next?
0: Yeah, our approach at MIT is I call um, neural embodied design. So most designers and Bionics, they think about the design of a synthetic device that somehow interfaces inside the body or is attached to the body. they don't think about fundamentally redesigning the body. So neural body design, we not only design synthetics, but we design the biological body. And we, we explore that, that interplay between biological design and synthetic design to try to maximize, um, again, the bi-directional communication between the brain and the device. So because of that, we, we invent surgeries. Um, we invent um, new proteins to be able to turn on and off uh, cells. Um, all these areas where we don't we don't view the body as invariant. We do view view the body as a, a uh, an area for which one can design. And and because of that philosophical distance, uh, I believe we're we're ex- we're seeing tremendous success in neural interfacing.
1: Mm-hmm. And I don't know. If, do you think about uh, um, the future of the the design of the prosthetics and exoskeleton? Where do you think maybe the advancement should be lies in the um, in the next generation for exoskeleton prosthetics?
0: Yeah. So the the word exoskeleton. Um, my definition of that is a is a device that typically runs in parallel to a limb your leg, for example, um, that comprises motors and, and structures um, to apply impedances and positions and torques on the body. Um, and it's an exoskeleton is typically used for human augmentation, um, where an orthosis is used for, for medical purposes, for rehabilitation. So exoskeletons, um, again, that, that would be for augmentation um, A lot of the same challenges exist between exoskeletons and medical prostheses. Um, Again, there's the goal of how do you extract the intent of the human, how the human wishes to move? How do you insert information back into the nervous system to tell, um, to give the human brain information about the state of the mechatronics in the, the the biological body? How do you attach to the body mechanically? You know, building an exoskeleton that uh, you know touches us from the outside is, and exerts forces and torques is very hard because us humans were very soft. So you're pushing on soft tissue, and it's very hard to efficiently apply torques about the body um, with such a soft substrate. So all these are are tremendous challenges. Um, But just, you know, my lab at MIT was the first, as I mentioned earlier, to build a leg exoskeleton that augments human walking and running. Believe it or not, that occurred in 2014. (laughs) So um, for over a century, scientists and technologists have been trying to augment humans with exoskeletons and just experiencing failure after failure. It wasn't only... It wasn't until 2014 that there was a success so again as i stated earlier us humans are very good at walking we're very good at moving we've been doing it for a very long time so to build a machine that that makes us even more efficient or more economical is a is a tremendous feat
1: mm-hmm and I'm curious, if, do you have any maybe surprising moments? Um, I don't know, maybe so testing certain time this, over these years was surprising to you or expected. Do you have this moment, any moment like that's surprising or not expected that work and that behavior or having that?
0: Yeah, I mean, most days as a researcher, most days are very frustrating, but there there are some days that are magical Uh As I mentioned, my my group invented a new uh, way of amputating limbs called the agonist antagonist myelonore interface, or AME for short. And in the surgery, we we dynamically link muscles to kind of create a biological joint within the amputated residuum. And when we link sensors to those muscle, dynamic muscle pairs to control the bionic limb. So when we, our first human patient, when we wired him up after his surgery, um, he, he quickly was able to control the bionic ankle and bionic subtalar joint. So he was moving his foot ankle complex like this, his bionic foot ankle complex. So we were excited about that because that in itself was novel. But then he stood up and he began traversing slopes and steps and various irregular terrain Um, surfaces and his his synthetic limb was just adapting to the terrain as if his limbs were biological and when we asked him are what are you you trying to move your limb in that way and he says no I I have no it's involuntary I'm not conscious of the movements at all Um, that was an extraordinary day in the lab um, because we realized that if you give the brain natural proprioception, proprioceptive signals, the human brain knows exactly how to control the synthetic limb as if it's a natural biological limb, without even the human being aware that the movements are happening. So um, oh, that was a wonderful day.
1: <laughs> That's a great. I don't know if you have, a, like, a sometimes we can design, there's a trade-off, and you have been working now for, I think, over 30 years or more, there's kind of a trade off, you think, is still very challenging to. You mentioned it's still the limitation, but what kind of the trade off do you think is very hard to overcome this trade off in the design?
0: Um, yeah, it's. My lab at MIT, the, the goal is to not only expand human knowledge, but also to ultimately develop technologies that humans can use. Uh, to translate ideas into um, clinically viable technologies. Uh, And that's a a very, very huge challenge to innovate. Um, So that design matrix includes not only elements of functionality of the device or system, but also um, cost and manufacturability, um, whether the device can be reimbursed um, whether the device has safety um, that it can get through the FDA for example so the the complexity of building a bionic body part and actually translating it to society is just enormous um, it typically takes me a decade to build build design and um, and launch a bionic body part, um, whether it's a foot or a knee or a hip or whatever, it typically it takes me a decade to innovate. That's how hard it is. Um, so, so there's many, many trade-offs that one has to make in that extraordinarily complex effort. What I mentioned earlier that, you know, we had, we have highly invasive interfaces to the brain and interfaces that are completely non-invasive. And then in between is minimally invasive. Minimally invasive is a beautiful trade-off because you've minimized the level of invasiveness. So yes, it requires a surgery, but it's on an outpatient basis. The regulatory hurdle is modest. The cost is modest. But still the signals have very high quality. Um, So we, we do think of these Sweet spots in terms of trade-offs, where we can have high performance and we can also translate the technology to society in a very efficient manner.
1: Mm -hmm. What the thing you still wish you want to maybe design or engineer, and still maybe we don't have the capacity to have it. You're still imagining that you want that, but still maybe we don't have the capacity to do. Maybe engineer certain. I don't know what you think about the future or certain things that you want to have it already, but it's impossible.
0: Well, very few things are impossible. Um, the only the only futures that are impossible are those futures that are a, a counter to uh, physical law. <laughs> so um, that allows for many, many futures uh, to be achievable. You know, I, I spent... I spent decades um, trying to translate technologies, trying to innovate and failing. And uh, only fairly recently have I succeeded. So it really, it really takes um, uh, a, a comprehensive skill set um, to be able to translate technology. And it takes a lot of people, it takes a lot of creative individuals uh, working together and working very, very hard for it to be possible. So, a group of people with a shared vision um, is, is essential with sufficient capital to make it happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Before going to the audience question, I have a question maybe about because you mentioned failure and trial. How does your relationship with perseverance? Because I found this extraordinary when I see this kind of perseverance. How do you deal with that? What's the secret to having this persistence and perseverance to make something happen?
0: Yeah, if you study highly creative, highly innovative people and institutions, um, you, one discovers that they have certain characteristics. Um, you know, being being a force of nature uh, is one characteristic, which means never ever give up, <laughs> believe in your vision so so acutely that um, you just know it's possible and. You refuse to stop until it's solved. Um, another characteristic is people that are highly innovative and creative. They, they, they don't um, they don't have the the language of failure. They have the language of exploration. So when something happens, you know, if I build a bionic foot and it, I test it and it fails miserably, to me that's that's not failure it's it's exploration because when something breaks it doesn't perform as one expects you're that much closer to solving the puzzle and achieving that high performance that you seek so when when i build a bionic limb and it performs in a way that um, is not consistent with the dream i jump up and down with excitement where you know, someone else may say, oh, it, I failed. I guess I'll give up. <laughs> to me, when it doesn't perform, I'm that much closer to success. So it's exciting. It's an exploration. It's not failure. So that's another characteristic.
1: Wonderful. So maybe we can have a few questions from the audience. Um, do you expect generative biology um, a competitor for prosthetic technology in the long run?
0: yeah I'm not sure that why the question's being asked, but you know I, a friend of mine is a synthetic biologist, and he says, Hugh, uh, why are you wasting time trying to build limbs out of synthetics? Why don't we figure out how to grow them back? Um, that's kind of an old-fashioned view because very, very soon, for example, our synthetic Artificial muscles will be far superior to biological muscle in terms of um, force generation and energy usage and whatnot. So, uh, you know, I don't view that the biological limb in its innate form is the best we can do. I think technology will become extraordinary for... Um, and therefore, we, can, we should continue to think about this merging between electromechanics and tissues, because that ultimately, in 50 years, will result in the highest performance.
1: Mm-hmm. And also a question about how, why we can't have a tentacle-like leg that be flexible, ending and adapting to different environments. I think question about having different morphology, like tentacle legs, Do you ever thought about that, having tentacle legs that be flexible ending and adapt to different environment?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's all all kinds of novel sensing strategies that one can envision and uh, that are being actually pursued in laboratories across the world. Um, And a lot of the sensing, artificial sensing, has biological counterparts, um, you know, little Hair cells, if you will, that that are synthetic, that um, somewhat work like biological hair cells, would be an example. So, yeah, there's a you know, Bionics is a is a wonderful a- a field to work in because um, you know nature has provided us such a vast array of capabilities, just glorious and beautiful capabilities, and it's it's a tremendous fun to. To try to use engineering design to emulate those capabilities.
1: How do you see maybe in, in academia the way I approach the problem? Because you really try to make a difference to people's life. And I think that's that's really phenomenal. And I have a huge respect for you for that. How do you see the equation between being in academia and doing research and at the same time doing something, realistically speaking, it's changing people's life? Do you see the whole or all research in academia, especially in robotics? Going maybe in the right direction, or investing, or funding in the right uh, direction—I don't know if you get my my point.
0: Yeah, again, to to not only expand human knowledge, but but also to build uh, devices that are translated to society um, is very challenging, and the key to success is to is diversity. You need an extraordinary. Um, intellectual diversity represented in your team. Um, again, the human body uh, encompasses so many domains of chemical, mechanical, electrical, and so on. And you need it, that tremendous diversity represented in your team. And if you're translating, you also need designers and artists. You also need business minds as well. And you need a lot of capital. <laughs> so, um the The problem with some areas of academia is, the uh, the laboratory perhaps doesn't have that diversity, um, and therefore nothing from the laboratory is ever translated to society. Because a mistake, the mis- inevitably a mistake will be made in the design, and it won't be, it won't be a device that can be commercialized whether the mistake is uh, a device that's too costly or doesn't fit or doesn't perform properly. Um, mistakes are often made when there's a, a limit on the diversity and the, the scope of intelligence of the full team.
1: I, I think maybe if someone interested to be studying bi- biomechatronics or be in this field, they think it has to have a huge knowledge and and physiology, because we already have physics already background and mechanical engineering and biophysics. So, do you think to understand the problem? Because I think, that if I understood correctly, from the imputation already, was there's a problem. And your story, I think, very inspiring. How you pushing the boundaries of understanding and what is really can be done. So, do you th- what does it take to be efficient and and understand the problem?
0: Some labs are filled with incredible engineers and some labs are filled with remarkable scientists of, of biology. Um, and neither of those types of labs are, tend to be terribly successful. The, the scientists um, don't have the engineering phys- sophistication um, and the, the lab with uh, engineers don't have the scientific sophistication. So the key is to have sophistication in both science and technology, um, purely from a a device functionality perspective. Um, But if you also want to translate, as I've emphasized in my last remarks, you also need experts in regulatory, uh, clinical work, reimbursement, um, formation of companies and so on. So again, the, often projects fail because an in, insufficient level of expertise exists at the beginning of the project. And then mistakes are made and the, and the project just ends. Um, so the key is to have many voices, many perspectives sitting around the table at the very beginning of the initiative.
1: I'm curious to ask you what makes you fulfilled uh, maybe in that, what you're doing. Makes make you fulfilled and be passionate to keep going what you're doing uh,
0: I th- I th- it's It's very powerful that uh, i I use prostheses myself um, and on, on on a few levels that's important. one is i I intimately am aware of the consequence of poor design i I've, I've, I've spent my life trying to work with bad design. And I, I know firsthand how devastating and painful it is to be, to trying to go about the world and you're surrounded by technology that's incredibly uh, poor in its conception and design. Um, so that's one aspect. Another aspect is uh, I, I'm often the first human to test, the technologies that are being conceived in my laboratory. I'm the first person to feel it, to experience it. Because I can feel it, and I also know the physics and engineering in my head, I can really quickly um, find the bug and solve the bug. Where another person may know the the science and and the engineering but can't feel it, um, so it doesn't come to the solution as quickly as i do uh, so that's that's an interesting advantage that i have and um, regarding my passion uh, again, I know how painful it is to be in a world of with design that doesn't work um, and I know how extraordinary it is and life changing it is to be given the 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 gift of a fantastic design, whether it be a beautiful chair or a prosthesis or an exoskeleton, great design leads to just absolute joy and human expression. So what really really drives me and my passions and whatnot is the times in my life where I can put out into the world a fantastic design that improves people's lives. Mm
1: -hmm. Very beautiful. Maybe it's a question about the design and beautiful design because you speak about the beauty and for you every day when you imagine, because you mentioned as a kid you really was imagining the future and I'm, I'm not sure if you still do that, but what kind of future do you think about you want to change that drastically, the shape, whatever? I don't know what kind of crazy ideas that you have.
0: I mean, in the short term, I would love to see a person with leg amputation dance ballet, I'd love to see a person with no arms play a Beethoven sonata Um, at normal speeds, normal expressions. Um, Longer term, I'd like to see a world where society doesn't have such a narrow view of human intelligence and human beauty that we greatly expand human diversity. And our our notion of what's beautiful and what's intelligent greatly, greatly expands. Right now society has a very narrow view of what a beautiful woman looks like and a beautiful man looks like. We have a very narrow view of what an intelligent person is. Imagine a world of where I hope we will be 50 to 100 years from now where uh, humans can express all kinds of shapes and morphologies and dynamics, all forms of thinking and expressing and feeling. As we blend our physiologies in with the built environment, we will have this greater capacity to express. And my hope is that we'll expand human diversity, not shrink human diversity, and fundamentally change our view of beauty and expression.
1: hmm Wonderful. Maybe that's a question. I'm curious about what life means to you because I think, I don't know the question why I'm here, what I'm doing and I, I don't know if there's something you would like to change or in retrospect when you look, at something I would like, I would, if I have opportunity, I would like to change it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that? What what life means to you?
0: I mean, I, I, I often say that uh, yeah, I believe that Uh, we can in this 21st century solve disability. So right now because of poor design um, humans across the world experience disability. Um, And my hope is at the twilight years of the century that our technology is, is so sophisticated that humans no longer experience disability. It's a human rights issue um, as I see it. Today we live in a world where if you're not able to see, um, you're not able, there's insufficient technology to allow you to see. If you're not able to hear the way you wish to hear, there's insufficient technology to allow that. If you're paralyzed and you want to dance, there's insufficient technology to allow that. So in the future, I hope we all have the human rights through advancements in technology uh, to be able to to see, to hear, and to move and to live a life without severe depression, for example, um, if we so choose. Today, that's hard to imagine because we're so used to a humanity that simply has to live with profound experiences of disability and limitation. It's hard to even imagine a society without that, but that is that is my dream.
1: Wonderful. I have a, it's such honor, I have huge respect for you, but I, I don't know if you have any final words to like say for. Robotics community will people listening, any final words like to say?
0: I mean, what what's what what excites me? Uh, uh, you know, sometimes we make the mistake of saying, "Oh, there's this certain cohort of people that are creative, and the re- the rest of humanity, well, sorry, they just weren't born with the right genetics." <laughs> um, I don't believe that. I think creativity. Is an emotional um, way of being that's largely cultural, um, and that's that's tremendously good news because as parents we can teach our children, um, and as community leaders we can teach our communities to be more creative and expressive, uh, and to to be part of the the global effort to solve tremendous problems, whether it be in disability or the environment or, or politics. So I'll, I'll leave you with that thought.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you really find it useful. And um, let me know what you think, if I have to improve any parts of the future conversations or the way I do the podcast, I would be grateful to receive your feedback and your thoughts uh, how we can make it maybe better experiences. So thank you, and I hope you stay safe and healthy. And see you next one.